0: Welcome to the Rapid Change Matters podcast. My name is Howard Cooper, and for over 14 years now, I've been fascinated with helping people to create personal change quickly. But I still come across many who believe that lasting personal change has to take a long time, consisting of reliving traumas or deep psychological analysis, or simply that flawed notion that understanding why you have a problem will somehow make it go away. I'm on a mission to get people who work therapeutically with others to shift their thinking and realize that these beliefs are not written in stone. Rapid change can happen. So, to help you open up to what's possible, I'm interviewing top therapists and agents of change who are out there getting real results with real people really quickly. Before we get to the interview, I just wanted to let you know that I've written a quick-to-read downloadable PDF on five strategies to amplify your client's response, with some great tips on getting your therapeutic suggestions to really sizzle. You can download this for free from rapidchange.works, where you can also find all the information about this episode and episodes still to come. Now, over to the interview. Today I'm excited to be doing something a little different. Now, having interviewed well over 20 other leading therapists and agents of change, more and more people are asking me what I think about all things change work. So this week it's my turn to join this rapid change conversation and fellow change worker and past interviewee Joe Kao, head script writer at hypnosisdownloads.com, has very kindly stepped up to the plate to interview me. But before I hand over the reins completely, let me explain that I've been involved in change work for just over 14 years, working as a hypnotherapist, NLP master practitioner, and all-round agent of rapid change. In addition to working with hundreds, if not thousands of clients with personal change work, I'm frequently involved with the corporate training world where I help sales teams to massively increase their successes by paying attention to a better and more precise use of language and communication. Additionally, for around two years, I was the lead presenter on Virgin Atlantic's critically acclaimed Flying Without Fear course, dealing with groups of well over 100 phobic flyers at a time with great success. But enough about my various achievements. It's time for Joe to put me through my paces, so I'm going to hand over to him
1: now. Hello, Howard. <laughs> Hello, Joe. <laughs> it's a pleasure to welcome you to your very own podcast. Yes, it's, thank, thank you very much. It's slightly <laughs> surreal. <laughs> so, well, you, you've already told us a little bit about yourself. Um, I was wondering, could you tell us a little bit more about what first drew you to this field, what first, you know, how, how did you first get involved in change work, and
0: uh, yeah, tell us a bit about your background. Okay, so I'm going to take you back to being about seven years old, bizarrely enough, at a children's party. And um, we may have listeners who are overseas at the moment, but certainly in the UK, it's kind of common at a children's party you have a magician for example uh, and then the guests or whoever's party you're at they give out a lucky bag and inside you get a bunch of goodies and I remember the magician at one of these parties when I was seven he put his hand into this lucky bag and said guess what you're going to be sent home with and he pulled out a rubber or an eraser and he said and it's a special magic rubber and eraser because you can take it in one hand and he indeed took it in that hand and you can blow on it and it'll jump to the other hand and he he demoed that and as a 7 year old i remember this feeling of going oh, magic is real it it was just it literally blew me away and i went home i was desperate to pull out my lucky bag that i got and i kept this magic rubber in my hand and was blowing on it with all my might and it just wouldn't move but it was enough, and I remember the feeling like it was yesterday. That there was this feeling of wow, impossible things really can happen. And years later, I uh, met a guy at school who was a magician. Funnily enough, his name was uh, was Joe, and uh, many people might not know, but we actually went to school together <laughs> many many years ago. And and it was you. You showed me a, a thumb tip um, where you could produce at will, uh, a red handkerchief and it blew my mind and it kind of rekindled that, magic's possible and then you taught me a bunch of tricks while we skived swimming lessons, sitting over the balcony of the swimming pool Um, and I I just remember having this feeling of, I've got to learn how to make incredible things happen and I think that is a a feeling that I have kept and has driven a lot of where I am even now, and people because I worked as a magician for a time um being fascinated with the art of magic and illusion and people often think that you know i, I kind of moved into change work after a, a significant uh, kind of couple of personal events that that happened to me but it was for me it's all been connected it's all about creating and understanding the the, the, the impossible because to me magic was always i'll be very honest and i hope this has not offended any magicians out there it was always slightly disappointing in that every time I learnt a new trick, there always felt like there was just a trick behind it, you know, and I could never quite recreate that feeling that I had when I was seven. Um, so I was on the hunt, I guess, for something real, and that's really what led me into to learning about change work and hypnosis and NLP because it felt like the closest thing to real magic or the magic of the mind.
1: Inspiring stuff, Howard. So the, the, the quest for real magic, the quest for the impossible and over the years and by the way uh i'm it's uh yeah it's it's a it's a pleasure as well that we're still in touch over all of these years because yes i'm 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 glad you you revealed it to the world but Howard and i both were magicians at school we've we've walked similar paths in in our own ways so it's it's been really interesting reconnecting all these years later and finding the commonalities and having so many interesting discussions about the uh, what's what's drawn us both into this field of of working with people using things like hypnosis and and NLP to help people to make changes in their lives more rapidly <laughs> than uh, you know might commonly be regarded as possible. Yeah. And. Over the years, I suppose what I, what I'm interested in, and I know from talking to you in in the past that this this has been the case for you, you've found and an experienced examples of people changing, of using uh, the, the techniques that you've you've trained in, the methodologies that you've trained in, to help people to make almost instantaneous uh, changes in their lives. That that have that have lasted and that you've you've received feedback on you know months and years later of okay someone can have sometimes even just one session and that's it uh, everything changes for them so uh, what, what would you say have been some of the more or some of the most striking examples of that for you in in your work up until now okay
0: so first of all I would. Uh... Um, before I give some examples, because you know, we've, we've, I've got loads of examples that I can give, I do want to caveat this with I'm also not a change worker who believes that rapid change always happens instantaneously, nor that it is the single most important thing and that sometimes time is a valuable tool. And time is necessary. I think this whole project for me is about recognizing that it's possible in certain cases for change to happen quickly. And that it's kind of railing against that idea that I've heard some therapists who will say, you know, we start out doing a block of 10 sessions. And they're saying that even before they've met the client. But how can they possibly know? You know, how can they do that? And I think, you know, I remember when I interviewed Trevor Sylvester, and he had a really nice uh, take on this that, that aligned very much to my way of thinking, which is, you know, it might take a little time, but you're always there in the in the session present thinking, well, this could be the one. So that you don't rule out the possibility, you know, that you accept and are open to the fact that rapid change can happen, because I've seen it, you know, time and time again. For example, and to take you back to the question... Um, one that sticks out actually is uh, an eleven year old uh, bedwetter who was sent to see me and I'd done some work with some of his other family members and they kind of trusted me even though I was very hands up open about the fact that you know I wouldn't say i'm i'm the the, the bedwetting specialist I, I, caveat <laughs> in terms of helping people I should say sure. um, but you know they, they, they wanted to give it a go and You know, in in theory, I'd been told that medically there was nothing wrong with him, uh, but that he just uh, hadn't had a dry night ever. And so he's 11 years old, and he's wearing you know large night nappies, and he now can't go to have sleepovers at kids uh, at his friends' houses. He's very embarrassed about the whole thing. And we did one session, and I I took him through actually some very simple. Uh, visualizations and it really taught him how to do some self-hypnosis really and four weeks later I get a text saying he's been dry every night and that was one one hour session mm. which you know the mother was very very grateful and very very pleased and, and even still even though I know what I did and one part of me can explain what I did the other part of me, which is the seven-year-old going, wow, magic's amazing, is still glowing and going, huh, isn't that amazing that someone can someone's brain can take those ideas and manifest that in the most amazing way. It, it,
1: just as you were talking then, it just made me think of the spontaneous ways that people change without ever seeing a therapist without ever going to see a hypnotist or a hypnotherapist or an nlp -er or an eft -er or any of these methodologies people all around the world it it happens time and again where just one day they decide that's it i'm going to give up smoking or that's it uh i'm going to get my health in order i'm going to stop overeating i'm going to start exercising there's people who turn their lives around without ever seeing a therapist even mm-hmm. things like coming out of depression or spontaneously stopping uh bed-wetting. there can be someone who who blushes you know chronically throughout their early life and one day just that there's a sense of that that response stops happening uh and it could be because of a change in their mindset it could be because they grow as a person and they realize that certain situations that they used to find embarrassing just they now feel indifferent to, but spontaneous change happens anyway. So therefore, why on earth would someone necessarily need ten sessions of working with someone before they can begin to make any therapeutic process uh, progress? You know why? So that rather than it seeming out there or outlandish to suggest that we might be able to make a significant change within one session or within two sessions. Rather than that being outlandish, surely that's the most logical and reasonable thing to say. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: And we're piggybacking off people's normal responses. And I often joke with with, with clients when I see them that I was a child of the 80s. And, you know, I, I, I found a picture of myself recently wearing a purple shell suit. Mm. and this thing was just hideous but it's funny because i remember when the photo was taken feeling like the coolest person alive i just felt like i was the bee's knees in this in a purple shell suit mm. but on the one hand i can remember that and feeling like i was so cool but i can look back now and giggle and i can laugh and that's not me anymore you know and i haven't had to have as you rightly point out i haven't had you know 17 18 years of therapy In order to to overcome my my love of purple shell suits, you know, change has happened, and I have a change in perception. And I think it's it's actually a very useful thing that I often start out with clients talking around, which is giving lots of examples where change is natural and change does happen all the time without effort. And it's a very easy thing for change to occur, because what I want to do is start out any change work by building a belief that change is easy.
1: And and in the way that you do that with clients, are there particular frames, expectations that you set, the way that you orient people towards how the work will happen, and even in in terms of how many sessions it it might take, what what are the ways that you go about seeding
0: expectations in, in clients? So this this starts really right back from when I I first speak to someone on the phone, Um, if they ring up with an inquiry. I normally say very similar things to people, which is I I tell people that um, I often work with people for, you know, two or three sessions. But it's not uncommon for people to change in one. But we always book in a session and then we do a call a week later and we see how they're getting on. I'm a big fan of doing feedback calls a week later, um, and keeping in touch with people. I I remember someone said to me, you know, uh, as a hypnotherapist, you know, what we do is we do a session, and then, you know, if I don't hear from them again, I just assume it's worked. Mm. And it was funny because I did not relate to that at all. I was actually the other way. I was just, if I don't hear from them, I I assumed it didn't work, that they didn't want to get in touch. Um, And then I kept coming across people that were referring people to me, and saying, well, you worked with my friend two years ago and you changed their life. And I'd go, well, I didn't know that I'd changed my life. I'd assumed it hadn't worked. So for my own peace of mind, I thought, well, I've, I've got to have a mechanism where I'm speaking to people a week later. Or at least at some point. So that I know. Because I'd rather know and get the feedback. Is this working? And if it's working, great. And if it's not, what next? Um, at a session, I'm a big fan of framing things as we're going we're to play a little. We're going to play together. And see where it goes. Um, I like the idea of play within my sessions. And I also like the idea of doing something right up front that gets them a little bit on edge, dare Mm. I say. Or takes them outside and very quickly into the realm of, oh shit, I don't know what he's about to do or say or come up with but in a a safe environment so for example I might often say in a moment I'm going to ask you what are you here to change today which I think is also a very good way good question to start with but before I do I need to warn you and I will use the word warn because they think something's gonna be coming now and say look sometimes I can be very kind very empathic very caring However, other times I can be, I would say, teasing, maybe a little difficult, maybe provocative, maybe prod and poke a little bit just to get a response. But whatever it is that I'm doing, I need you to know that I'm doing everything I can to help you move in the direction you want to go in. And I'll nod and I'll say, is that okay? Mm. And when they say yes, which they always do, for me, it's very powerful because, one, they often seem a little bit taken aback when I say I might be teasing or provoking. or But it means that I have some scope now to play. It means that I have, I've given myself permission to be a little crazy or to do out, unruly or outrageous things, mm-hmm. which for me as a change worker, maybe not everyone needs that, but I, I enjoy the comfort and the freedom that allows me to have fun, really.
1: And and to even wear a purple shell suit if the mood takes you.
0: It, I, I, I've, I've been known to do even crazier things than that, yes.
1: And so you're getting their consent and you're op- you're broadening their expectations for the session. You're letting them know this could be something a little bit different from what you might typically expect in a traditional therapy session.
0: Yeah, and I think there's a lot of people out there who still have this whether it's just pervade in social consciousness the image of the man with the goatee beard with the chaise long you know asking the repeating counselling-esque questions of and, and how does that make you feel and, and, and is that okay yeah. this, this uh, complex equivalence of, of uh, you know if someone has a problem you have to be very just kind and empathic and they're just gonna say oh, are you okay that's right. Yeah, are you sure you're okay? Okay, no, you'll be all right. Pat, pat on the back, and so on. And I think that is. I want them to know very quickly that's not the way this will go, which is why I do like the word. You know, I'm gonna. I need to warn you,
1: because mm.
0: they always sit up in their seat, and I want them to have a little bit of trepidation. Um, you know, a, a healthy trepidation about. I, I, you know, when they come in and say, "I'm actually a little bit nervous," I think to myself, "Good." Because they're preparing for something to, to happen. Yeah. You know, they they think something out of the ordinary could happen. You know, if they're not thinking, well, you know, why why would they're not going to be nervous if they think it's going to be the same thing that they've always had because they know what to expect.
1: Um, I'm. It makes me think of the memory techniques of the ancient Greeks and it's something that is not particularly part of Certainly, mainstream British education, but to fix a fact in your mind to make something memorable, the simplest way to do it is to come up with outlandish, bizarre imagery that helps you to associate which king of England came before Henry the Fourth or came after Henry V, and by by creating vivid images things stick in your mind, even stuff that's grotesque, even stuff that you would not say to Hyacinth Bouquet, you would not say in a polite tea party. I I remember uh, learning a whole group of uh, foreign students' names, people from Thailand, people from uh, South Korea, really names that did not stick easily in my mind. And I I came up with very, very rapid, obscure, uh, bizarre associations for each of the people that were sitting in each of the seats of of the room, and 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 it, it it helped those names to be to really stay with me. And in the same way, if you if you go back to a change work session, if everything is familiar and tentative and very very gentle and soft and predictable, there's there can be a sense of nothing having made an impact, of nothing having happened. Whereas when you've got that freedom to be playful and outlandish. And to to tell stories, to ask questions that make people go, whoa, and and something changes in them, something sticks in their mind. Uh, That's the thing that they then tell you about a week later or two weeks later. Wow, when you were saying that in the session, Mm -hmm. I haven't been able to get that out of my head.
0: And uh, things have been changing since then. It's funny because I will also often drop in at the beginning and say, hey, guess what? If you hear me going off on various tangents and telling you stories that seem unrelated... Just relax it's all there for a reason mm. now I will often say that even even if some of the tangents te- the I go off aren't there for a reason because I want them to be scanning for what I'm doing to create meaning mm. so that they think there's a possibility so for me if you can take them into an unfamiliar state and for me that's, that's I mean it's essentially a pattern interrupt mm. you know if you take them to an unfamiliar setting and you sow the seed that something unfamiliar is happening. And then you tell them, hey, guess what? I might do stuff, and there's going to be real meaning there. You're already setting up a framework by which they're becoming more open to experience what the session might deliver for them.
1: Mm. Can you tell everyone who is listening to this, including me, uh, a little about your thoughts on rapport building, as it's conventionally taught, in Mm -hmm. pacing someone, in uh, setting them at their ease, uh, matching their body language, perhaps, versus what um, people, including... I know Richard Bolstad puts an emphasis on this, certainly Richard Bandler puts an emphasis on this, but the practitioner's own state at the very beginning of the session, the idea of being more of an entrainment beacon <laughs> that sounds i love that terminology and i am an entrainment beacon at the start of the session but in you know how you put yourself in a certain state when you're working with clients and and then so and, and the balance between that versus pacing so okay so
0: i used to fresh out of my nlp training i saw rapport as quite a mechanistic thing As in, oh look, they're nodding their head, therefore I must nod my head now. And that way I am showing them that I am like them, and I'm in sync with them. And, you know, oh look, they're leaning forward, they're crossing their legs, and if I was really clever, hey guess what, if they cross their legs I could cross my arms, and now I'm cross-pacing or cross-matching. But for me, I think there is a, a... a danger of being too mechanistic about it, and what's lost is, and I I don't know about you, but I used to find sometimes I could get so caught up in thinking about matching them and pacing them, from a mechanistic point of view, that I would be forgetting where I was going and what else I was doing, because I'm too busy thinking, open my arms, cross my arms, sit forward, sit back, and I used to teach, when I was in communication skills trainings, that kind of mechanistic approach. And then I suddenly realized, and um, played around with this, that if you instead, you got people doing a training exercise of matching people mechanistically to remember and connect with someone that they really find fascinating or really enjoy speaking to, and they really like, and they connect with the feeling of what it's like to talk to them, and then send them to have a conversation, most of the stuff they were doing, if you watched them, they would be mechanistically matching someone, but without realising it. So for me, it, it's kind of a shortcut to matching, because I think I do match in that way, and I do create rapport in that way. But for me, it's just about trying to hold on to the idea that I am speaking to someone who... I mean, when I interviewed Mike Mandel, he talked about pretending someone is the most fascinating person alive. But actually, for me, it's I, I just think of someone that I connect very well with, And I get the feeling of, wow, I really like this person. I'm going to connect with them. And then I trust that all the other natural mechanisms I have in place that are in place when I naturally like someone, then begin to come out. So, and I think it is important. You know, for me, there is a danger, I think, if you treat someone to... People come with a story. And I think if you don't take the time to listen to their story or to get them to understand that you really understand where they're coming from, I think there can be some resistance to change because they spend too long. I mean, as a change worker, there is a temptation to dive straight in and go, "Okay, great, you've got all this stuff that's going on. We'll just make it small and push into the distance and do this and do that and do the other. And let's just move towards you feeling good. But if we move too quickly to that phase, I fear that they can have resistance because they're sitting there going, no, 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 but you haven't heard me yet. And they spend more energy and time trying to, and they will ramp up how bad they are, because what they're trying to do is to say, hey, guess what, you haven't heard yet. So you have to have a phase right at the beginning, which I would classify as rapport, which is happening at the same time as uncovering what's going on for them. But you're feeding stuff back to them in a way where, yeah, you end up matching their body, but not through mechanistic means, but just because you're focusing on your own state. And then you are getting them to understand that you totally get what's going on for them and that what's going on for them up until now has been normal. And another theme that I like to bring out at this phase is that they're not broken. They've just learnt some stuff. But I don't think that they're broken. And a lot of people come and, certainly to me, and, and they, you know, they go, I'm the only one. For instance, fear of flying. They go, everyone else can fly, but I'm the only one that can't. But if you look at... Their response to a turbulent flight or, you know, lightning striking a plane, you know, 10 years ago, they're not broken. Very normal, natural protective mechanisms have have kicked off. You know, and I often joke, I say, look, if you walk down the street, if you're five years old and you walk down the street and you got attacked by a dog, it's not broken to go, (gasps) dogs are bad. Broken would be going, I've just been attacked by a dog. Let's go and find 20 more that would be that would be strange you know so for me i want to get people to feel like they're normal um because when you uh when you get into a point where they go oh god he really gets this he really gets how this has been for me they seem to be more willing to change because they're not fighting to be heard anymore
1: so there's a different aspect to rapport building there beyond physically matching and as you've said that's something that happens all all by itself when you're in the right state mm. I, I was thinking of how dolphins they've when dolphins do synchronized swimming and when they track them using uh whatever you'd call it those, <laughs> Doppler nature, those nature or... video cameras yeah. that have a very <laughs> high frame rate uh but you, you know sometimes one of the dolphins is leading and the other one's following, and sometimes Mm -hmm. the other one's leading. And it it, it oscillates between the two. But my point is, none of those dolphins ever went to matching and mirroring school to learn the techniques of matching and mirroring. And we, too, are mammals. And that when you have the intent to be in Mm -hmm. sync with someone, uh, there's a biological, there's a mammalian part of us, not an alien part of us, but we are mammals and mammalian part of us that that knows how to synchronize where that that matching and mirroring it's something that spontaneously arises when it, when there's a good relationship uh between two people well, and not... then you, you were adding into that this, this um approach of of normalizing of, of mm. the per- so that when the person goes yeah so this person gets me this person gets how uh my experience makes sense so there's a there's, there's a different level of of connection there of understanding of okay yeah. ah it's and and it takes the pressure off the person from rather than feeling like they are different and, and isolated I a stranger and afraid in a world I never made it no it's, it's okay this is this is it, it would it would not make sense for you to be anything other than how you are given that if a dog went and, and bit you and barked at yep. you, you know, what, ex- exactly as you said, why would you go and run to try and find twenty other dogs
0: um so but yeah, it's, very very powerful. these are survival oriented mechanisms at play we are survival oriented beings and essentially rapport fundamentally is a very natural process to help us survive it's really that simple you know there's the phrase people like people like themselves and we see examples of this all the time I know people that they'll go away to America for example for a month and then when they come back you know and you say how was the trip they'll go awesome and you go what's happened to your voice because they've got a slight twang mm. to their voice, uh, because at some level they wanted to fit in. You know, they're surrounded by uh, a different way of speaking, a different accent, and to so that we are seen as being more similar to other people. We we have mechanisms at play that bring us into to line. We're less because uh, here's the thing. This is certainly how I how I see it. If I see someone that looks a bit like me, sounds a bit like me, talks a bit like me, uses similar words to me, I will jump to the conclusion, rightly or wrongly, at an unconscious level, that, hey, if they're like me and I know what my capabilities are, then they must have similar capabilities to me. Therefore, I'm okay to let my guard down a little more around them because I know what they're capable of. So it's kind of a shortcut to survival whereas if I see someone that's very different to me so for example tall you know I think wow they, they could be capable of just anything and um, yeah so essentially these these are things these are mechanisms that not only are natural but we're using all the time anyway I mean you think about the way we talk to children you know and your five-year-old comes over to you and says have you seen the picture that I've drawn and we all do the same res- thing don't we? we 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 scoot down a little bit so that we show that we're on their level so we're less of a threat, we're more like them, and then we'll say, and we'll do something with our voice, and we'll change our voice a bit, and we'll go, did you do that? Did you? Now the reason we do this is because we want to show that we're like them, we're less of a threat, and I think the same thing happens in good change work. But there's, these are not kind of mechanistic things that we learn, They're just it's just the way we communicate. For me, one of the things about NLP and hypnosis that I like was it just tuned me to some of the things that humans are doing anyway but if we know that's how they're doing it and that's how the mechanisms are at play we can go and do it in a more structured formal way to create a desired effect
1: it's, it's almost as if you're suggesting that people should let more of their humanity into the the sessions as as change workers rather than um being uh totally detached from the session and and following a script it's almost as if you're saying we we have human instincts that can that can help us to interact with heaven forbid heaven forbid (laughs) we should be a human um one thing you said Mm. uh a few minutes ago you said when I know uh, what's, so when, when we found out a little more about what's going on with that person mm-hmm. when so the person that you're working with and I, I was just interested in that that when you say that you're you're finding out what's going on with them, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're finding out about their entire upbringing their their childhood, all of their formative experiences, their nightmares that they had when they were twelve. Uh, it doesn't mean that you're, you're interested in the entire story of their life, I take it. What are you interested in then? So you, you've set the frame with people, there's a rapport between the two of you, and you're finding out what's, what's going on with them. What, what does that mean for
0: you? Um, what it means for me is, and I do work more often than not structurally, is that I, I want to know how do they create the problem? How do they structure their thoughts to create the, the resulting problem or the pattern of behaviour that they want to change. So literally it's, it's what pictures are they making in their head, how are they talking to themselves um, and that will often be my, my first port of call, where is the feeling and begin to play around with what can we do to manipulate those things and how can they control those things in a way that changes it for them. I think it's an empowering way to work because and often I'll get people to make themselves feel worse before better just so that I can say the seed that, hey, there's some control. Mm-hmm. And it can be a little easier to do. For me, I I do, whilst I don't get it, I would say, you know, I'm not going to sit for an hour and a half taking a full detailed history of, you know, telling me about the, the, the dream you had when you were 12, about your father, your mother, and so on. I am sometimes interested in, in saying, well, how long has this been like this for? And, and, and have you got any ideas of how this all started because you know for me if, if they turn around and say yeah well m- my name is Jimmy and I was attacked by a dog when I was five and it's all been since then whilst i I don't always think that you know this idea of doing you know one initial significant event happening is always the case it can be a useful framework to guide a session like that in mm-hmm. so I think there is an element of going, well, is th- is there a specific event that's triggered this? More often than not, I get people and they say, well, I don't know why I'm afraid of flying, for example, because I've never been on a bad flight. I haven't had a bad flight. I, it's just grown gradually over the years. You know, I have theories as to, as to how that happens too, but, you know, for me, I want to know a little bit about how they see the problem has emerged and currently what are the uh, mental patterns that they're running that perpetuate the pattern or keep it going, whilst always implying that they are the ones that ultimately have control.
1: What you've been saying there about giving the clients control, I was going to say a sense of control, but actually it's it's putting them in a position where they can control their own experience much more than they were able to before seeing you. That that's something that um, we've discussed this a little in the past. I think that's that's something that's key to your way of working. That I don't think always comes through in all forms of rapid change work, NLP, the you know <laughs> the rest of the rapid therapies. Um, th- th- that's not always communicated to the client. This is a way of you learning to control your own experience, and of and, and I think it's something that you very much emphasize in in your work with people Could, would you like to well, if share any thoughts on the on the importance of that put it this way
0: if someone uh, let's take the example of being in a room where imagine this you're sitting in the living room and the TV suddenly turns on and it's blaringly loud like offensively loud like someone's turned it up to like the maximum volume and now at that moment you're not going to freak out You might get a jump and startle because it's loud but you don't freak out until you look around for the remote control which is your first port of call and if you can't find it that's when people will start to freak out. They'll go SHIT WHERE IS IT? GOD! QUICK! I CAN'T FIND! You know, and then if they find it and there's no batteries in it they'll freak out even more. WHERE ARE THE BAT- However, if the TV suddenly switches on very very loud and it's blaring and offensive but the remote control is just sitting next to them. They don't. They don't freak out. They just reach over and they just turn it down. They go, "Oh, that's loud." Oh, oh, and they just turn it down. And for me, that's kind of a key message that I want to get across to people. Um, which is, and I think it's a more empowering way of working. That you know, someone comes to a hypnotherapist traditionally, and it's like they want someone to just do something to them whereas what i want them to do is to go away with an amazing remote control with a brand new set of batteries and show them how they they can they can turn stuff up turn stuff down and take control because it's a much more generative idea so a much more generative message where you empower people and they go away and hey guess what it's not just that thing that they came to see you about the changes but suddenly you know two weeks later they ring you up and they say hey howard guess what this other stuff has changed as well because they suddenly realize it's a flipping universal remote and it changes other stuff rather than just the channel they had been pointing it at. You mentioned
1: that your understanding of rapport has changed since your early days Hmm. of uh, training in in NLP. Are there there other things that have changed in the way that you work with people uh, compared to when you were fresh out of your initial training... Uh, compared to when you first started working with with clients I suppose what are some of the biggest differences in what you do now compared to all those years
0: ago um, it's a really good question it's a really good question I think there's there's probably so there's there's everything I do differently you know I, I I love to change my mind about the way I work and I change my mind often I think changing one's mind is a good thing but I mean, to give you some examples, or tangible examples, certainly that come to mind, I think there was a danger, if I'm very honest, when I left uh, fresh out of the training, of having a great amount of confidence without necessarily all the competence. And that one could argue that I looked at people very mechanistically in the sense of, oh, they've, they've come, they, they said they want motivation. And literally, you're just going to think of a time when you had motivation, anchor it, future pace it, you're done. And I think it's just a little more nuanced than that. Um, I think I work, ironically, I'm probably slower and more patient than I was then when I first started. Because I also understand, despite my whole thing being rapid change, that sometimes you know people need time to change and to let it unfold at, at the rate and speed it needs to but I'm always of the mind as I said earlier that it, it could happen you know I'm always open to the possibility that for me it's like a jigsaw you know that uh, you're just searching around for the right piece and it can take a while to find that right piece but once you find it just clipping it in is takes no time at all I think I have a much more integrated approach into everyday life in that there is a danger I think, of personal development, when we get people also the idea that someone has to be 100% juiced up on life all the time in order to achieve, and in order to be happy. And I think it's okay for people to still have problems. <laughs> Sorry to be a little bit downbeat, but it's okay for people to, to know that you know there are going to be some tough times ahead. And... You know, that things can get difficult and stresses, but that doesn't mean that they have problems. It just means they're human. You know, and we can have a set of strategies that help us through those times, but, you know, I think there's a danger of, you know... I mean, like, I remember going on one of these big, huge events with thousands of people, motivational speaker up front, you know, and I just felt totally pumped up. Totally pumped up, you know, juiced up on life. But then the moment something comes along and knocks me down... You know, I'm thinking to myself, oh, well, well what now? I, I better go back on another of those motivational courses. Rather than, okay, it's all right. It's okay for that to be the case, you know. Uh, but how do I pick myself up? You know, I don't need to be operating at 400% every moment because it's unmaintainable. Mm-hmm. So I'm a little bit more integrated in my approach or uh, understated. I want, I want to change to be amazing on one hand and magical yes but it has to integrate with someone's real life and it has to normalize so that great they now feel full of motivation but what's that really like you know because they're still going to have to go to the toilet the next day and go and get groceries are they supposed to walk around going I'm totally motivated now to pick up that apple I'm going to buy four apples and then four oranges and it's okay you know (laughs) they have to be able to live with this stuff you know so I want it to feel normal for them to be like this and maintainable.
1: Words of wisdom indeed. Are there particular people, whether authors, teachers, trainers, people who've had an influence on your work and also the way your work has changed over the years?
0: Yeah, um, look, Richard Bandler um, and all, the, all all of the books of Bandler and Grindr, uh, they did uh, have had a massive impact on me. Um, However, despite saying that, I think one of my my biggest regrets is that I didn't branch out earlier to reading more widely around the field, which I've subsequently done, um, and continue to do and get other ideas and and things around uh, change work. I've been um, very influenced by, I I think I do a, a fair amount of provocative work, so people like Frank Farrelly um and and his work and indeed i interviewed yap hollander who wrote a book provocative coaching but uh, i I think a lot of those ideas have weaved their way into my work uh as well yeah i'm very a big fan of milton erickson Mm. which won't come as a massive surprise to people out there um because i think he was just incredibly good at working indirectly And just looking behind how he came to the conclusion and the thought processes behind how he went about those interventions. And you'd never read about interventions where one was the same as another. I loved that. You know, that he was a a fountain of doing things differently depending on who he was working with. Um, And just reading some of that stuff just for inspiration. I, I would thoroughly recommend um, although with the caveat that uh, sometimes you can read some of the stuff that he did and and seem capable of and go, oh, will I ever be able to do that? So, you know. Um, but I think it's a really useful thing to be able to to, to be inspired by some of these greats.
1: Speaking of inspiration, Howard, hmm. as as we draw this this interview to a close, is there are there words? Are there is there advice? Um, is there inspiration? that you would give to people who were, well, let's say people um, who'd just done their initial training Mm. in, uh, you know, just or who were just setting up as change workers, as therapists, you could also say, you know, advice to yourself when you were first starting out, but with the benefit of experience, with the benefit of wisdom, with the benefit of hindsight, seeing from behind. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, what, what, what well, The, the first thing that jumps out at me is not to fall into the, the trap of thinking that some of the top trainers out there and the top people are getting 100% results. Um, sometimes you can do training and you, there's a tendency to put trainers on pedestals and see one demo subject you know uh, in a in a workshop setting where they do a 10 minute demo that works amazingly and then jump to the conclusion wow that person's life now is going to be a hundred percent better forever and then holding yourself up against that as a metric to co- as, as a metric comparison when you're then starting it and doing change work and suddenly discovering that guess what you're seeing clients that haven't had the benefit of spending six days. Having chosen to be on a change work course, mm. right? So that your results may not be the same, and it's okay. I I think looking back, I would have wanted to give myself permission to fail more than I allowed myself to. I, I used to te- tear myself up. I mean, I would have successes, sure, but there would also be yeah, a load you know, a bunch of people that I I wasn't able to help with, and I would think, well, yes, but oh. If they'd have seen this person, and that then he would have fixed them in five minutes, and then I would make myself feel bad. Um, but the reality is, is that yeah, I think it's it's okay as well to to realize that you know not everyone get, people don't get a hundred percent success rates, whatever they tell you, and that's okay to give yourself permission to learn, you know, and to read widely, and to and I I would definitely say read widely, uh, practice. Practice, 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 and give yourself permission to fail. And that's where some of the most amazing learnings happen, you know, by, uh, you know, going out and failing and then picking yourself back up and then carrying on and recognize that you can't compare client, real client interactions with the demos you see on stage with people who have been tenderized for seven days and picked specifically because they respond well by a trainer who knows what they're doing. But
1: you're not implying that, that Milton Erickson didn't have absolute total 100% success rate with with all his clients, are you, Howard?
0: Well, I, I like Milton Erickson when he says, you know, there's a bunch of people he's uh, been able to help and there's a few he's still working on. Mm. You know, mm. and that it, you, can, you can frame it as, hey, guess what? You know, he, failure is only uh, only happens if you put a deadline on it. So yeah, that that old age of you know it's feedback not failure, I think, is important.
1: But yeah, yeah, no, I I, I think that's that's so true. the putting gurus on pedestals, and you know, I I was joking, of course, about Ericsson. Ericsson, of course, uh, you know. <laughs> but he did get a hundred percent. Okay. He did. He did get a hundred percent every time. But yeah, there were, there were people who who Ericsson could not help within the time he had, let's say, um, and there were people whom Ericsson saw session after session after session after session on and on over months and months and years and years, yeah. uh, where the idea of comparing yourself to that kind of an intensive client client work and saying, well, in, in this one session, we, I couldn't get the change that I wanted with this particular client. It's it's an absurd comparison. And yeah. I, I think many of us are guilty of putting gurus on on pedestals.
0: And you're right. I mean, you know, I remember reading, you know, uh, one of the stories with Erickson, and it, it took him. He, he says something like twelve hours, which is, you know, twelve sessions or whatever, before this person could enter a state where he felt he could even begin the work.
1: And Erickson, of course, would spend huge amounts of time uh, in advance of of seeing people, especially as in 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 preparing. Uh, before seeing clients. He he was known in the early days for writing out reams and reams of what he wanted to say to the person and then editing it down and reducing it down and reducing it down. And in the end, of course, throwing away all the pieces of paper and Mm -hmm. just working with, with the client in front of him. But that idea of mastery at this kind of work coming through hard work as well, through putting in the time, through constantly refining what you're doing, and through finding that balance of rigorous practice, but also trusting your your intuitions uh, when you're working one-to-one with someone, just as we were saying about rapport. But, <laughs> yeah.
0: And look, when I passed my driving test first time, congratulations well i was yeah, i paused for the congratulations but it didn't, didn't come so freely uh but I, I was really excited and i remember going home i said to my mom i said listen I've, I've passed my test i'm so excited and she said i think the thing that all mothers say to their children which is she went great she went now you can learn to drive and at the time i didn't know what she meant because i thought i oh, well hey guess what I, I i've got the piece of paper that tells me i'm a driver i've passed the test um, and it's not until, of course, years later, or all the experienced drivers know that, yeah, you, I just hadn't had the years out putting it to the test and actually building up the experience that allows me to have a sixth sense, as it were, on the road of how to manoeuvre and how to deal with these situations that are coming up. And I, I always viewed getting the piece of paper that says, hey, guess what? I've completed my NLP master practitioner, my NLP trainer, my hypnotherapy. I always saw it as that's the provisional license it doesn't mean i can do it it just means that's the piece of paper that now enables me to go out on the roads and really gain the experience now that i need to get good at this it wasn't the end of the journey for me it was just the beginning and that's the other piece of advice that i would definitely give people
1: fantastic yeah that's that's a brilliant brilliant analogy there so uh before we finish howard i mean thank you so much for coming on your own show and thank you i wasn't sure i'd have me but i persuaded myself (laughs) uh thank you for having me be you for the day talking to you uh being you and if people (laughs) are listening to this podcast which i believe they are and if they're keen to hear more from you Mm. where should they go
0: other than here and how should they get in touch when they are already here it's a very good question. It's a very good question. Well, first of all, as you know, you're probably you many of you if you're not listening on the iTunes app or the Apple podcast app or Stitcher on an Android phone, you will probably be on the rapidchange.works website already uh which is a very good place it's a it's a hub where we will be adding live trainings and all sorts of other resources and coming stuff and there is a contact box at the top so you can contact and send me an email and uh, the other thing that you can do is there is the rapid change works facebook page uh, which again is another place that will culminate all the exciting things that are yet
1: to come and on that note howard i think i heard your your dog uh, shaking her collar in in the background ready for a walk what what's the name of your dog by the way
0: oh yes i thought you'd never ask Uh, my my dog officially is called dr millie h erickson (laughs) and she wears a purple collar for those who are real uh real (laughs) aficionados
1: i hope you and billy thoroughly enjoy your walk and uh, on that bombshell on that
0: bombshell indeed no <laughs> thank joe you thank, thank you so much for for agreeing to take me through uh, through this journey as well and uh, thank you for making it as uh, as painless as possible i do my
1: best Howard. i do my best it's been an absolute pleasure
0: i hope you enjoyed this episode and if you did why not share it with anyone you think might be interested and even head over to itunes to give us a glowing review You'll find more about what's coming up on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash rapidchangeworks. And of course, you'll find all the links related to this episode, plus those free five steps to getting your suggestions to sizzle over at rapidchange.works.